Test. Hey, um, well, good morning. We are going to get started in adult Bible study here in a moment. Um, there's a handout, and we're going to talk today about what we mean by church. It's a, a good New Testament word. We see a lot of that. But what do we mean by a, uh, a church? So I think this is a very practical kind of lesson because um, we have an idea of church in the way we use that term in, in just in our English language today. We say a church, we might mean a building, uh, but we might mean something else. And, and church gets used outside of a Christian context, which is kind of just weird. So does the word Bible. So, so what is a, a church? Um, th- there's a Greek term, uh, ekklesia, and we get a, a word we use in English that no one ever uses uh, unless they're in a class like this right now. And that's ecclesiology. Uh, ecclesiology from this Greek word ekklesia, so that we were studying the church, the doctrine of the church, what the New Testament means by the church. But ecclesia is the term in our New Testament, usually translated church. Sometimes it's translated as an assembly. It does not always refer to a church in the sense in which we usually uh, think of it, because it's it's a generic term. Um, It really has as its root the idea of an assembly of people, but it can be an assembly uh, in the sense of a governing body, like like Congress. They assemble together. That was a common usage in the in the first century for the Romans. They they would have a senate that assembles, and there the 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 ecclesia, the assembly. Um, there's a few references in the New Testament to like the assembly in the Old Testament, referring to Israel, but not meaning church, just just an assembly, a gathering of of people. But I, I wrote kind of a functional definition out of a book here in the margin that I think is a good workable uh, definition. It takes on um, a particular meaning in the New Testament, and you really glean this meaning from reading the New Testament. It's not just a single spot where, where it's all set out there, you know, church means this. But what I wrote here in the, in the margin on the notes is that, um, you know, in the Christian context, it refers to an assembly of baptized believers in Jesus Christ committed to one another in love and called out of this world into a worshiping, caring, and witnessing fellowship. That's kind of a, a mouthful, but I think it's a, a fair a definition out of a, a, a book that I think is a good source. Uh, it's something you see, especially as you read the book of Acts. And so we'll look at a little of that. But I wanted to um, start in Matthew 16 with something Jesus said about building the church. Um, Peter makes a profession of faith in, in Matthew 16. And Jesus is asking, you know, um, who, do, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Matthew 16, verse 13. And they replied, that's his disciples are there, Peter and the, and the others. Some say John the Baptist. Notice Jesus says, who, who do people think I am? That's what these Gospels are about. They're about identifying Jesus. They're not biographies. They don't give his whole life. But who do people think he is? Some say John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. These are all the wrong answers, right? People have all kinds of ideas. They don't know what to make of him. And Jesus says, but you, he asked them, who do you, right? You, Peter, you, Matthew, you, John, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter speaks up. He says, you're the the Messiah or you're the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's a play on words because Peter's name means rock, but it means a, like a small pebble, a little rock we would see in the dirt. And, and on this rock is, is more of a, a, a large rock or a boulder. So Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church. And people have a lot of debate about what the rock is and, and all that. And um, it isn't Peter, is, is a person, although he is foundational in the book of Acts. And we can't and shouldn't take that away from him. All the apostles are foundational in, in the building of the church. But the rock is really Christ and, and those who will identify with him. But the part I want you to see is this part. I will build my church. That has a lot of ramifications because there's just a, a sense, I think, among even many Christians, that church in the sense in which we would think of it here today, a church gathering at this place at the appointed time, isn't important. I mean, that's just a common, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm in the church with a capital C. We'll talk a little more about that. I'm in church with a capital C, you know, the Catholic Universal Church. This isn't all that important. It's kind of this idea like this is man's idea. What we do here today, the fact that we're here, is that a human concept? Is it man's idea or is it Jesus's idea? And he says, I'll build my church. How is he doing that? And why does he think it's his when it's mine? Right? You understand this, this whole kind of human idea that church is just a man-made institution. That's a secular idea. But it's too widely accepted among Christians. And once you accept that, yes, Jesus has this church out there in the ether, and I'm a part of that because I'm a Christian, but this local thing on Sunday mornings, not real important. I could be fishing. That's not a good idea, and we're going to see why. But think about that. I will build my church. Where would I look to in the New Testament to actually see what that looks like? Jesus building his church. There's one book in particular, Jesus building his church. What does that look like? Where would you go first to see what it actually looks like in real time, him building his church? Acts. Yeah, the book of Acts, right? That's why it's there. It's a history book, but the whole point, the central point of the book of Acts is Jesus is building his church. And so we'll look at a few verses there, but I want you to have that in mind. Jesus says, I'll build my church. It's his. He's in charge of it. He owns it. And as I put in note one, you get from Ephesians, he died for it. And from his perspective, the church is his bride or his wife. So like that seems to make it a lot more important than I just think the importance too many people give to it. If he died for it, wow, what does that say? So another thing, too, is a lot of times I'll hear folks say, and I, I get the gist of this, it's just not quite right. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm in the church and I'm part of the kingdom. And I hear people say, we're going to do kingdom work, kingdom. I'm doing church work because during this time, during this age, the project Jesus is doing is I will build my church. And the book of Acts, if you just read it, what happens? In Acts 2, he adds thousands of people to his church located in Jerusalem. And within a few chapters, you've got a church in Antioch, and then you start getting Paul's missionary journeys, and there's churches in Corinth, churches in Berea, churches in Thessalonica. That's how he builds his church. 
He sends out people like the Apostle Paul and, and others. Uh, we don't know how the church in Rome got there. I mean, we have a pretty good guess, but Paul didn't found that one when he writes the book of Romans in the late 50s. He hadn't been there yet. But somehow Christians planted a church, a local church in Rome. And, and we're just saying that is how Jesus is building his, um, his church. So just have that in mind. Uh, it matters, and we'll talk a little later just real briefly, uh, is church attendance optional? One time I said what I'll have to say later, and anyway, somebody got mad at me and never came back. That's all right. Um, the scripture says something about that. Uh, churches, I'll just say it this way. There's a, uh, there's a scene in, a, in a, uh, a movie with Larry the Cable Guy, and he's so happy to get his stolen truck back. And he's like, I'm just, you know, this is just like a blessing from God. I mean, I'm going to be in church on Sunday. I've got my stolen truck back. Wait a second. Not this Sunday. I got a bass tournament. Next Sunday, I'm going to be in church because I got my truck back. You know, is that really how we should think about it? Well, let's talk for a minute about this idea of a local church. I'm going to read a few things from the book of Acts. I want to start like in chapter 8. These are just some examples. But I've listed here local and then universal, sometimes people call it an invisible church. What I'm suggesting is, is real simple. There are probably some passages that refer to church, that word, and they don't mean a specific church in a specific location, like this church that we're in. They mean something else. But that is the uncommon usage. Uh, almost every time the word church is used, it is a local church at a specific place. That the word's used over a hundred times. There's less than a dozen, and in my view, probably less than five or six times when it's something other than a specific place. But I had just read Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church. That doesn't sound like a specific church in a specific place. Right? It sounds a little different. So there's two ways to take it. And I mean, this isn't... Um, it's not real important except for one practical edge. We can't get to a view that we think, well, I'm in the church with a capital C and that's all that matters. Because Jesus wants you in a church in a place that meets at a specific time with people coming together. It's the word assembly. It has the idea that people actually assemble. Right? It shouldn't be a surprise. Um, Matthew 16, 18 could mean um, church in the sense of all Christians. But another way to think of it is in an institutional sense. He says, I'm going to build my church. And you say, but what does it look like? It looks like a church in Corinth, a church in Chapel Hill, a church in Brenham, a church in, in Athens. Um, that's what he means. In other words, like if I said, uh, as a politician, I think the family matters. Family is important. Well, do I mean some big global family? No, I mean specific families. I can use that term in an institutional sense. Um, that's my view of, of that passage. Again, you know, the main thing is not to, if you view it as a, a universal, there's a church with a capital C, which is uh, the Catholic view that they took from Augustine. It's not a, a view that came up later. It's a very ancient view from, from Augustine. That there's a big invisible church, which is why you need someone in charge of it. We call that a pope. Uh, but that could be possible. But another way to take some of these passages is just when he says, I'm going to build my church, 
in an institutional sense, yes, but it is actual local churches. So I want to show you examples of local churches, then I'll show you a few examples where it doesn't look like it's a local church he has in mind. So just a few. Um, Acts 8 verse 1 is one of many. Um, I think it's verse 1. Let me make sure. Yeah. Saul agreed with putting him to death, which is a reference to Stephen. On that day, Acts 8 verse 1, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. See, it's clearly a local church. Right? There's a church in Jerusalem. And, and, and we know reading Acts, and, and that church doesn't get to meet in a museum. Um, they may meet in several homes. It's a large church. Uh, in church history, there would, um, through time, they would develop places of meeting that were like the synagogues. Uh, but early on, you see them in homes. Nevertheless, even though they may have met in several homes, it's the church in Jerusalem. So it's a local church, and that's just my point, is that if you look at most of the passages, it's a local church. And, and, and that gives us the clue into how Jesus is, is building his church. If I go to the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31, now listen to this. This is kind of a general, a general use of the word. So the church, chapter 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. Now, what does he really mean? He's used the word church in kind of a global sense, but he doesn't mean all believers. He means local churches in Judea, okay, southern part of Israel, Galilee, northern part where Jesus was from, a part of it anyway, Samaria. They had peace and were strengthened, right? Because the, the persecution maybe have let off now uh, because of Paul's conversion. So it's just to say, if you look at it, even though it just says the church, he really meant a group of churches, but a group of local churches that were experiencing um, some peace. If I said to you, the church in China, the church in China, there's more Christians in China than in the United States. So if I said the church in China, I don't mean a mothership. I mean uh, the church is expressed through local churches, often meeting in secret in people's homes in China, just like they did in, in, in here. Um, Acts 13.1, just again, a couple more of these references. Um, 13.1, now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manane. Um, the church at Antioch, this is one of the early, early churches other than the one in, in Jerusalem. It's not far from, from Jerusalem. The apostle Paul would use it as a launching point for his missionary trips. It's another local church. So you just get the idea. Now think about the New Testament letters, because I won't, I won't go read all those verses, but why do we call 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians? And who's it written to? A church. Yeah, a church specifically at Corinth. And it's 1 Corinthians just because it's the earliest one we have. We have 2 Corinthians, and if you read them, they have, there's, there's another letter he wrote. We don't have that one. But again, it's to Corinth. Uh, Paul wrote Romans to who? A church in Rome. He wrote Ephesians to the church in Ephesus, which he founded. We're going to read about that one in a minute from the book of Acts. Uh, Colossians, church at Colossae, Thessalonians. Like, wait a second. I thought what's most important is church with a capital C. Why are all these letters to churches with a little C? 
because that's how Christ builds his church. If everyone said, I don't want to be a part of a church with a little c, I'm going to sit in the church with a capital C, um, that would be a real problem because Paul wouldn't have had anybody to write to. Right? He wrote to people who were in churches, for the most part, that he founded. What about Galatians? What about that one? Uh, that one's worth looking at the first verse. Um, because Galatia is not a city. It's, it's a Roman area, a province. So when you look at Galatians, you see how Paul opens up that book. He says something just slightly different. Paul, this is for beginning of Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man. That's a big statement there. It's, it's a, a theological aside, but I have Facebook friends that are apostles um, because um, they told me so. Right? But how do apostles become apostles? <laughs> not from men or by man, right? Um, but by Jesus Christ. He's the one that picks them. Um, and then he says, uh, from, so, so from Paul and all the brothers who are with me to the churches, plural, of Galatia. So there's some dispute about, and we're not going to follow this one, but just there's some dispute about which Galatia he means and, and all that. But the reality is it's several churches, and I think it's obviously the ones he visits in the book of Acts, like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. They're specific churches, local churches. So this one's written to a group of local churches. The people he calls the Galatians are those churches in that, that region. Um, but some of these references, and I mentioned um, Matthew 16, 18, they're, they're not to a specific local church. And so you do see those. Uh, but I think primarily, not always, primarily, the emphasis, even of something like, I will build my church, is he's going to build his church through local churches. Um, Hebrews 12 is one notable exception where he clearly does not mean a local church. And I want, to, I want, to, I want you to see that one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. So clearly not a local church. Um, he says, the writer of, of Hebrews, um, He refers to the assembly, that's the word church. In Greek, it's the word church, but it's been translated assembly. To the assembly of the firstborn, whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect. Um, Let me back up a verse and, and put 22 with it. This may help understand it. He says in verse 22, instead you, his audience, have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, from the writer's perspective, his audience are Jewish Christians, okay? They're people who are culturally Jewish. Um, They are Christians. They've they've put their faith in Christ. They are being persecuted by by Jewish people who are not Christians. Chapter 10 uh, outlines the persecution. They've had their stuff stolen. They've been put in jail. And they're toying with the idea of going back to the synagogue to stop the persecution. They don't have to give up Christ. They just need to not talk about him in front of those people. So they'll give me my job back. Let the kids go back to the school. That kind of thing. And, and, and what the writer reminds them of is, is from God's perspective. At this moment, in the midst of the trial you're going through, you're standing before Mount Zion in heaven. 
He says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, not Jerusalem on earth, the heavenly Jerusalem. The writer of Hebrews emphasizes the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, uh, in the latter parts of this book. And he says, you, in this persecution, thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to the synagogue, don't you know you stand at the foot of the new Jerusalem? It even says in parentheses, the heavenly Jerusalem, verse 22, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering. This is one of the numerous reasons a person can never lose their salvation from God's perspective. Everything that's true of Christ is true of the Christian already, including our standing at the very foot of the new Jerusalem with the angels around. Because I know that persecution looks bad, but get a perspective on who you are in Christ. And that group, that unites all of us as Christians from local churches around the world. And in that sense, you do see this, this reference to the assembly, verse 23, to the church of the firstborn, Jesus, whose names have been written in heaven. So there is a sense, especially uh, in this sense, of, of um, an assembly of all believers who, who they stand before the new Jerusalem. That makes a little bit of sense. We, we don't see many uses of church in this way. It's not a local church. But the writer dealing with these persecuted people, he takes them and tries to give them perspective on reality. And it's a different reality than we'd, we'd maybe expect. So let, let's, let's move forward. And then I want to give a, a chance for any, any questions about this. But I just want you to have that in mind. Okay, just basic point. Most references are to a local church. Local church is how Jesus is building his church, and it matters a great deal to him. Uh, Jesus thinks Christians ought to be in a local church somewhere, setting roots, getting involved, and, and, and that sort of thing. In that sense, it becomes a community of believers. It was never meant to be just be a Christian at home. I know, I know somebody that, you know, his whole church is just him at home with his family. Um, that's not Bible. It's just not. Okay. So what about the method and purpose? Look, look at Acts 2. Um, the book of Acts tells us so much about what a church should do, what it should be about, without getting into a lot of areas that I'll mention at a note at the end, I call in, in number six, note six, areas of liberty. And this is what I mean by this. There are specific things where it says, do this this way. And we don't like to do it that way. because We're Americans. We'll talk more about that. But there's other areas where he doesn't say. I have found that some people get really upset about not having bulletins that are printed in paper. That's a, an area of liberty. I despise bulletins. But I handled church finances for a long time, and I was like, I mean, they're expensive. But other people were very upset. Can't have a church without a bulletin. The whole operation's going to shut down. We don't have a bulletin. Then when you have the bulletins, people get upset because it's not... It's not folded on the line. Um, there are areas of liberty, and, and you can have a bulletin, and, and they can be put to good use. I mean, just all kidding aside, and you cannot have a bulletin. And there's nothing in the scripture one way or the other that says, thou shalt have a bulletin. In fact, it's, it's even worse than that. It doesn't even say in scripture you have to have the song service before the sermon. Oh, you want to offend some people, reverse the order, because that ain't how it's done. Uh, there's nothing in the, in, in the scripture that says how long the service should be. If you go to services in a lot of other countries, 
they're a lot longer. Better be bring a sandwich with you. <laughs> oh yeah, and it absolutely says you got to use a hymnal, right? There's a practical problem with using the hymnal. It's a real simple one. I can't see it. <laughs> well, I've got these <laughs> continuous lenses or whatever, and now I can see them. So, so, so Acts two is part of what gives us an idea of what a church has to be about. And you've got areas of liberty. You just have areas of liberty, and and uh, and, and we need to distinguish between the two. And also make sure that we don't take our preferences. We got to have a bulletin. Uh, we can only sing from a hymnal. Uh, and then make them, that's what the scripture says. Because it ain't what the scripture says. But what it does say, uh, Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading it, uh, verse 41. Um, 41 says, So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that's the message that Peter presented. This is what we call Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast. It's the day in which the Holy Spirit empowers um, the believers that are there. Um, most, I'll say most people say the church begins this day. I don't say that, but it's not a, it's not a big deal. What's clear is uh, the church is empowered that day because of this filling of the Holy Spirit that occurs. This is a key, a key part of the development. Jesus told his apostles, you wait here until this happens because this will empower them. And then there's a sermon. And, and the focus of the sermon is that the people are from all over the world. That's the focus of the sermon. And they are not all Jewish, although most of them are. They're from all over the world. They hear the sermon in their language, their native tongue. And, 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 and the point is that, that all these people from all the backgrounds and all the languages are getting united in one body that day. Uh, and so they were, uh, those who accepted the message, were baptized. Okay? Uh, if they believed, they were baptized. If they didn't believe, they wouldn't want to be baptized. Okay? Uh, so they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They were added to the group that already existed, the apostles and some other disciples. And then let's see what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's number one. Well, I should say number one was being baptized, okay? And that's why I had in my definition in the margin that a church is a group of baptized believers in Jesus Christ. So they were baptized. But number two, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If we wanted to be like them, how would we do that? This church... Chapel Hill Bible Fellowship wants to be like this church that has 11 apostles, really 12, we count Matthias, in charge. How would we do this? Devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Yeah, we study, we'd study the scriptures. And it presumes that we believe them to be true. And the apostles' teaching is what the New Testament is. And, of course, the apostles tell us, you know what, all that stuff in the Old Testament, that's profitable also. All Scripture is profitable, uh, Paul would say to Timothy. So, first thing that's key to, to, to a church, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why don't we uh, bring in um, the best that Paul had to offer and the best Peter had to offer and, and the best that Jerry Springer has to offer and the best that whoever else you want to put in, Oprah and and uh, Tom Cruise and whoever else that's got something to offer. Because everybody's got an idea about the shape of God and how many angels you can put on the, the head of a, you know, the, the, of a needle or something. Why not bring all that in? 
Well, it's real simple because it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's nothing about being devoted to anyone else's teaching. Why? Because they thought the apostles were speaking for God. And, and if you have God to learn from, who else would you need? Right? Secondly, ah, to the fellowship. To the fellowship, what's that? The, the, the Greek word's koinonia. This word's used a lot in, in the book of Acts. It's used a lot elsewhere. Um, it's it's a, a mutual sharing together. It's, it's kind of what you think a fellowship is, as long as you don't think a fellowship is the meal that you have together. That's a little different. Um, Chapel Hill Bible. What was it? They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Chapel Hill Bible Fellowship. Right? They, they're devoted to the fellowship. And he'll explain what the fellowship looks like. Um, to the breaking of bread likely means to keeping the Lord's Supper. Everybody eats. To say that I'm devoted to eating, we're all devoted to eating. Otherwise, you'd be dead. He, he's not saying by breaking of bread that they were devoted to eating. As laudable as that may be, right? They were devoted to the Lord's, uh, to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And, and to prayer, and to prayer. Are these not things we do here? So you understand, like, it wasn't that, that people sat down and said, well, you know, we, if we had a church, what would we do? Well, we might open up the Bible. We might pray some. Uh, I, I taught a, a class a long time ago, a Sunday school class. And, and the class was going to vote on whether or not we should pray. And anyway, I said, well, I'm not going to have any part of that. I'm going to pray. You can decide if you want to come or not. Uh, but it's kind of weird. Like, like it's, we were going to say, well, maybe we should have some prayer time. Or maybe we may read the Word of God aloud or, or whatever. Like, it's just right here. This is where the idea comes from. It's not my idea. It's not Mel's idea. It's not anyone else's idea except Jesus Christ who has his apostles implementing this. Okay, so we've got the Word of God taught. We've got fellowship. There's a whole lot to be added to that. The Lord's Supper, prayer, and of course they were already baptized. That kind of sums it up. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. That was by the Holy Spirit. It was part of what was happening that day. Now all the believers were together. Fellowship. They're gathered together. They weren't at TV, uh, at home on TV or watching it on, on Facebook Live. They held all things in common. Um, this is not communism, but there is a sharing of stuff because there are some people who are impoverished and they need to help. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had, had, had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. Um, they ate their food with a joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Um, the persecution would, would start later. So this gives you a snapshot of, of what a church would, would do. And, and I want to look at one other passage, and that says, if you turn to Ephesians 4. So what we've got so far is, is an emphasis within a local church is on the teaching of God's word, the development of fellowship, um, the ordinances like the Lord's Supper, okay, and prayer. Like those are the, the you know, the primarily it. And, and, and what you'll see, of course, the one word I didn't use yet, and I should, is, is worship. And, and this wasn't a stretch for them in any way. I mean, there was singing within the, the Jewish uh, background and, and within uh, synagogues. And so there's going to be worship, and there's lots of references to that in the New Testament. But I wanted to fast forward to Ephesians because I want you to get a little more picture of the method and the purpose by which Jesus builds his church. Um, this is Ephesians 4, 
And starting in verse 10, I can find where I put it. But it's going to say something real specific about how Jesus has provided for, for the church. So when he says he's building his church, like, how does he actually do that? Well, he said, you wait here until I send my spirit. So there's that. And that's how it all sort of kind of gets a kickoff and empowered in Ephesians 4. Uh, I mean, in, in Acts 2. But in Ephesians 4, starting in verse 10, it says, um, the one who descended, that's talking to, about Jesus, Ephesians 4.10, the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. Jesus died, but he now he rose again, he ascended, and you see that in Acts 1. And listen to what Jesus did. Now, this is the key for us for, for understanding church. He himself, Jesus, gave some, and it says to be apostles, but that's I don't think is there. He gave some apostles. Okay, these are Jesus gifting people, not giving people gifts. There's a, that's a difference. Gifting people to the church, to build the church. At which church? All the local churches you read about in, 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 in the New Testament. Um, he gifted them with apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. We kind of have the idea of what prophets did. Okay? And, and we know who the apostles were. Uh, prophets don't just tell the future, but that's a part of what they may have, have done. Prophets in the Old Testament also talk about the present. They apply the word of God. They'll say, you know, thus saith the Lord, and they speak to present events. Um, evangelists, what do they do? They evangelize, all right? Now, I want to come back to that, though, because it may not be what we have in mind. Um, I don't think he's talking about Billy Graham. But we'll see. Um, some pastors and teachers, and some translations say that just a little different, and to make clear that it, it's, and it's widely kind of accepted that pastors and teachers here may be describing probably the same person. Uh, I'll say a little more about this, but this is the only, listen, the only place in the whole New Testament that refers to a pastor. Isn't that interesting? We call him pastor, and there's nothing wrong with that. Scriptural term is right here in Ephesians. But, but it's, it's not the word that the, that the writers use every other time. They always say what? An overseer or an elder every time, except this. And, and, and the reason is, is simple. Um, this word describes the function of this person. They shepherd. Because that's what pastor means. It's the word for shepherding a flock of sheep. They shepherd. Uh, in John, 20, the last chapter of John, when, when, when Jesus is talking to Peter, who had, um, you know, failed him uh, a few days earlier, what does he say to Peter? He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that, you, that I love you. Then what does he say? Feed my sheep. And that's what, you know, the apostles functioned in many ways is, is, is in a pastoral capacity other than they may have traveled and planted new churches. Um, so some pastors and teachers, they are shepherding a flock and teaching. That's kind of their primary role. And, and so we get this word pastor. As I said, it's, it's, other words are used that we'll just touch on lightly in a minute. But um, he gave them, and look at verse 12. Here's the key. Here's the key. What are all these people doing, these apostles, these prophets, these evangelists, these pastor teachers? What is their primary function? Not the only function, but their primary function. Verse 12. Why did Jesus give them? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Well, Jesus, how would you do that? Well, he says, one way I did it, besides sending the Spirit of God to you like a promise, 
I sent you some apostles, some evangelists, some pastor teachers, some prophets. Oh, see, see how he's doing the construction project to equip the saints. That's us. We're the saints to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Wait a second. I'm not on the church payroll. You mean I'm going to do the work of ministry? I thought the apostle and the pastor and the prophet and the evangelist were going to do the work of ministry. Um, yeah, but their work of ministry is to prepare all of us to what? Among other things, to evangelize. Certainly in the first century, certainly then maybe to prophesy. Um, to prepare us to maybe step forward as a pastor teacher. See, so what, what has happened sometimes, and in, in, in this, not at all a dig at Billy Graham. I, I, I think highly of him. I've read all his books. But when we think of an evangelist, that's who we think of. Billy Graham, Louis Palau, you know, these people that kind of travel around. And in my independent Baptist background, we had evangelists, and you, you actually, which is kind of funny if you think about it, but you schedule a revival, which has almost nobody there except people who are already Christians. And someone comes around who can, he's, he, he probably doesn't have a whole lot of sermons he preaches, but he, they're good. Uh, and they're evangelistic. And if you have someone in church who's, who's there and maybe they got invited, they might get saved. Um, I really do know a ton of people whose, whose testimony is they got dragged to a Billy Graham crusade back in the day and they, they accepted Christ there. There's no doubt. Like that, people get saved that way. But we tend to take that and think, well, that's what he means here. There's these evangelists, and that's their job, is to go church to church and evangelize. When he's telling you that's not their job. Their job is to equip you and me to evangelize. The expectation is everyone who's in a church will evangelize, and there will be some people that have a unique gift that Christ has given to the church to equip the saints, all of us, to evangelize. That's a different way of thinking about it, right? It's just black and white here. Think, think about that. Think, because we, 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 we don't... Once you think it's just these, these, this list of people that do the work, it's like, I'm just a spectator. No, 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 it's just the opposite. So I wanted you to see that. Any, any question about that? Just thought, do you make some sense? Yes. Yeah. Well, le- so, go ahead. I do agree that everybody should be equipped and have the knowledge to know Christ and give a reason for what they did. Yeah. But I, I don't think. I'm going I'm to push on that a little bit, but I totally, I totally identify with you. Okay. I'm telling you, I'm an introvert. I can see a hug coming from 50 feet away and try <laughs> to find a place to hide. And so the idea of knocking on somebody's door or even standing up here and talking to a group of people, but knocking on somebody's door who I don't know, which is how I was told in the Baptist background was how you evangelize. And, and there was a time when that was fairly effective. Uh, and even today within certain cultures, you can do it. You can do it. But, but within um, an American culture, n- not usually. And, and plus, I'm just scared. I just... I. I am, and I'm just not going to do it. I'll be honest. I ain't going to do it. Right. But, but that's the problem, because that's not equipping you to evangelize. 
And, and it has this idea that here's what evangelism looks like. If you're going to do it, you're going to go, like in my context, in my past, you're going to knock on doors. Here, here, let, me, let me keep this simple, but it's, it's so important. We evangelize, and we are successful at evangelizing when we have natural conversations with people about the things of God. It starts in a place that may not include sharing the gospel. When Jesus talked to the rich young ruler, he doesn't actually tell him how to get saved. He tries to bring him to a place of seeing his self-righteousness like that of the Pharisees won't get him there. The actual, uh, the actual uh, deal closer, you might call it, when you present the gospel and perhaps someone places faith, we think of Billy Graham as a deal closer. Maybe he is. But that's not where most of the evangelism happens. And most of the people that show up have heard something before. The evangelism happens when you have natural conversations. Someone knows that, that, um, that I, I mean, I could give a lot of examples, but they, they just kind of know I'm kind of in church. They lost a loved one. They come to me to talk about it. We're going to have a natural conversation. I'm going to bring in the things of God. Even if I don't bring them to a place where they trust Christ, the fact that I had a Jesus conversation is successful. This is the reason we don't need fear. We can all have conversations. And once you decide it has to be me presenting the death, burial, and resurrection, that may not be the right time to do it. Your first conversation with a lot of people isn't the right time to do it. But there'll be a time. You say, well, how will I know there's a time? What did Jesus say in Matthew 10? You know, they're going to bring you in front of, 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 of kings and, 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 you know, and, and rulers and all these people. And, and, and they're going to be mad at you because you're preaching the gospel. He says, but don't worry. In that moment, by my spirit, I'll give you the words to say. You need to trust the moving of the spirit in you to give the right words at the right time. And that removes all the, the fear. I hope that makes sense. Karen? And, and, and that's the point I'm making, I hope, for the recording. You know, I, I'm thankful you brought it up and you're honest about it because that's where most people are because we have an idea of evangelism that could be, but it's not always what really is evangelism. Um, just have natural conversations about Jesus. Don't hide your Christianity. God will bring people to you and open the opportunity and he's done that repeatedly. Virtually any time I fly on an airplane, trust me with this, and you, you put this to the test. You go fly somewhere, just put a Bible out there in front of you on the, on the thing, on the, on, the, on the tray. Just do it. Trust me. It'll work. I, I, multiple times. One time a gentleman runs a big company in Houston sitting beside me, sees that open. He starts asking me how he can d- deal better with raising his children. It's like Jesus saying, okay, go to it. I didn't have to knock on somebody's door. He's asking me to tell him about the Bible. It has happened multiple times. I have sat down by, uh, uh, you you know, usually pastors, sometimes deacons, usually pastors. Um, I've had the, the, the airline attendant stop and sit down beside me because she saw me having a Bible open. It has literally just happened time and time again. It's not hard. 
But, 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 but I understand the fear factor, and I, and I take that, that seriously. When you decide that it's natural conversations, and anytime you have a natural conversation, even if it's just very basic and introductory, that is successful evangelism. You're laying some groundwork. It may be someone other than you that's going to add to that. But it won't usually be just a crisis moment that, that where somebody closes the deal. God works on people, uh, and often for years before they get to the deal closer, who's the one that actually sees them finally accept Christ. Well, a few other things here. Is, is church optional? Um, Hebrews 10, real quick. We need to see this, and this is how I've uh, offended people in the past. Don't misunderstand me. There can be a legalism that gets into this. I'm not trying to suggest at all. Um, there are a number of good reasons that, that you know someone cannot be in church attendance. I'm not getting into that. Uh, there's a number of bad reasons, too. Uh, we have allowed, and I'll just say it, um, uh, children's activities to supplant Sunday morning. Uh, some people might say, well, why do we have to meet on Sunday morning? Can't we meet on any day of the week? We can. The scripture doesn't obligate a particular day. When you read the book of Acts, it's obvious they met on Sunday. By the time Revelation is written, probably the last New Testament book, it uses a phrase, the Lord's Day. Um, That was a widely used phrase in the first century, and it meant the day we met, which was Sunday. So it was a practice. Okay, Can you meet on Saturday? Sure. Can you meet on Wednesday? Sure. Uh, so, so you can get legalistic, but for, for, for a lot of folks, as I said before, and I'm in church with a capital C, I don't need the church with a little C, um, they might ask me to, to write a check. And if I'm out on the lake fishing, worshiping God in my own way on Sunday morning on Lake Somerville, um, I ain't going to be asked to write a check. I think Jesus said, yeah, you ain't going to catch no fish either. <laughs> right? But uh, here we are in Hebrews uh, 10. And I just want to read 19. 19 says in, in chapter 10, remember, these are persecuted people, and, and they've been heavily persecuted, and, and, and it, it's real tempting. If I don't gather publicly, they won't persecute me. That's the point. Their excuse wasn't that the fish are biting on Lake Somerville. Their excuse was, I'm going to be persecuted. My stuff will be stolen. I may be thrown in jail. I may lose my job. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, this is the the, the heavenly temple, um, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The curtain of the temple on earth led to the Holy of Holies. Our curtain is the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ dying on a cross. That is, in a sense, our curtain to enter into the presence of God. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near the true heart and full assurance of faith with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Um, Let us hold on to our confession of our hope without wavering uh, since he who uh, who promised is faithful. And listen to this. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. The assembling together, a lot of that is because you can be an encouragement to other people. There's somebody today in this church that needs to hear an encouraging word, probably several of them. It's your job to do it. Right? You see what I'm saying? And, and so we, just, we, we get into people's lives as best we can. It's very hard for some of us, like me, because I'm an introvert and I see a hug coming and I run and all those things. But, 
We have to do it. And that's why he wants them together. He says in verse 25, not neglecting to gather together. That's meeting at church, okay, and by tradition, Sunday morning. Um, as some are in the habit of doing. He doesn't mean some are in the habit of going to church. He means some are in the habit now of skipping, right? He says, don't neglect gathering together. Why? Because you can't do verse 24 if you're not gathered together. You can't provoke one another to love and good works. All the one another verses in the New, in the New Testament, you can't do it unless you're together. And he says, instead, encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, which is going to be uh, the coming judgment on Jerusalem. So, so just... Um, my last thing, because I'm out of time, is I have some notes here you can look at about who's in charge of the operation. Jesus is in charge of the church. It's his. He died for it. He's building it. What you see in a, in a good passage to read uh, I've got here is, uh, well, I thought I cited it here, but it's the book of Acts um, where, where Paul is in Ephesus and he he's, speaks to the elders of the church. And my point is simply that the New Testament indicates that local churches would have elders in charge. And this is where the American in us just can't have it because somebody's got to be in charge of them. But then we, we say, okay, so we'll make a, a, a board or something and they'll be in charge of the, of the elders. <coughs> Who's in charge of the board? It's a real problem, right? We've got a Supreme Court of these here in the United States. But who tells them what to do? Why, who tests them? The answer, well, the, with the, but the answer at the end of the day, because God ordains human government, is they will answer to God for how they dispense their justice or fail to do so. Uh, and, and, but, but, but the elders, um, they will answer to God. They cannot answer to a, a board of deacons or, a, or, or any other board or denominational authority. Those things are human ideas because we're Americans by God. And we say, well, we don't have some board over them. Well, they'll just do anything. No, they won't. No, they won't. And, and, and do, do, do pastors and elders do stupid stuff and get into trouble? Absolutely. Does God deal with it? Yeah. Does it have real-time consequences? Can he, you know, someone I was close to was a mentor. Uh, he did something that he shouldn't have done. Okay. Uh, an, an affair while he was uh, a lead elder and pastor of a church. God took away his ministry, all of it, in a day, in a day. He got away with it for about 10 years, but in a day, he lost everything. The radio ministry, the, the professorship at a college, the church he led, everything, and everyone knew about it. Did it, you know, what happens? God deals with these things. So just have that in mind, and, and um, you know, when I mention here, deacons, that, that word means a servant or an assistant they have no leadership role beyond that which is um, delegated. They can be delegated a task and then give us some leadership over that. Um, but the word just means servant. That's all it means. So that's God's, God's structure for, um, for a church. Let's close. We're out of time. My Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word and, and just an opportunity to think about how you build your church, what this is really about, why we, why we gather here today, and why we have a teaching and prayer and, and all these things that, that, that we do. Um, help us understand it. Help us to see that we're, we're in the middle of, of something you're doing. Uh, it's, it's your church, Lord, and we, we do thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege you give us of being a part of it. Uh, bless our day in Christ's name. Amen.